I really, really like this song. I could see myself putting this on loop or repeat and just charging down the highway. Not really driving, just kind of running down the highway because it's that kind of song. It makes me feel like I want to play in traffic and win. I really enjoy it. And I would easily pay a dollar for it, which is all the band is asking for. The song is called Cthulhu Don't Surf. It's from the band Surf Aliens, and it's going to be available on an album that they did with the band Terror Surfs, who I also think we've had on the show in the past, and if not, I should, because they're also really good. The album is called Terror Alien. It's a six-song release, so I guess it's technically an EP. You can pick it up over at theterrorsurfs.bandcamp.com and just look up the album Terror Alien. Terror Alien is actually one word. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. I'll also make sure there's a link to the Surf Aliens Bandcamp page where you can pick up their previous two albums as well. Anyway, I love this song so much. I don't know what it is, but it's doing something to me. I'm going to play it again in its entirety at the end of this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. This is Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, producer, and um, surf music aficionado, I guess. This is episode 488 of the show. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to have you here because this week we're talking about a kind of sort of Lovecraftian movie, which is part of the reason why I went looking for songs that had the word Cthulhu or Lovecraft or something like that in them. I found a few of them. There are a handful of surf bands that do take some Lovecraftian influences and incorporate that into what they do. And here I am talking about the song again, which again, I really like. But the movie we're talking about is called The Maze. It's from 1953 and it stars my boy, Richard Carlson. I love Richard Carlson, and not just because of what he did in the Creature from the Black Lagoon film, one of my favorite movies of all time, but he's just a heck of an actor. He's charismatic, and he can carry a picture, which he does this time around. However, I don't think I can carry this episode all by myself, so I have a friend joining me. As always, we have a special guest, and this time around, we are welcoming back to the show Renaissance man Jonathan Inbuddy. He's going to be talking about The Maze with us. This was actually his idea to talk about The Maze. He suggested this title and I jumped at it because I really dig this flick. Spoiler. Speaking of which, there are going to be some real spoilers in the conversation. It's kind of impossible to talk about that movie without really talking about the big reveal or as Jonathan puts it, the element at the end of the movie. So heads up. You're going to get another warning before we actually get into the conversation, but there are spoilers coming, just so you know. Here's another spoiler. Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We're doing it again because, well, it's not an episode of Monster Kid Radio without it. Kenny is the man. I'm looking forward to that. And we have another beta capsule review from our ultra guy, Mark Matsky, from the Monster Study Group podcast, as well as a handful of other things. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to what he's got going on. This is going to be a fun episode, and not just because of all this, but we also have a little bit of listener feedback, which we're going to get into right after this. Spider, spider, do your duty. Catch a girl and trap a beauty. 
The Candy Web. Entangling the students of an exclusive school for girls in a network of terrifying and suspenseful adventures. What starts as a playful flirtation suddenly takes a sinister turn. Trapped in a house of mystery, caught in a web of deadly menace. Candy, this is not a game you've been playing. This is for real, and there's no place to hide. Innocent stands face to face with terror. If you don't tell me, I shall have to call someone here to make you. Spider! You know about him? That's impossible. She sees too much. She knows too much. The spider receives his orders. She must be killed immediately. feedback discussion of the show we have an email that came in from listener of the show friend of the show former guest of the show tom from the go forth and game podcast which you can find over at goforthandgame.com i'm going to fire up the monster in the machine he's going to read the email to us and then i'll respond here we go just some quick feedback on the last two shows i just finished the david j skull interview that was neat i was not aware of david's work and the look behind the curtain information he shared has me wanting more i added his newest book and his Dark Carnival book, to my Amazon list as a result of the show. Thanks for introducing me to him. The Vault of Horror show was fun. I have yet to see it as I haven't been able to find it on streaming yet. 
Larry Underwood is always a fun guest and the stories in the anthology sound great. Speaking of which, in response to the show, I dug out one of my old copies of a Gladstone compilation of EC Comics. This one was one of the tales from the crypt titled Books. But lo and behold there was the story Midnight Madness, the vampire story, that was adapted for the film. Synchronicity. I've missed the Monster Kid Movie Club for the most part the last two Saturdays due to family stuff, don't worry it's all good, but did catch the last 30 minutes of the giant Gila monster. I really dig that movie. Solid fun. I'm looking forward to this coming Saturday's fun times on the Monster Kid Movie Club. Thanks again. Your friend. Tom. Tom, thanks for writing in, man. I appreciate it. And I'm glad you enjoyed the last couple of episodes. Last week's episode, the interview with David J. Scal. I didn't say this in the last episode, and I really, really meant to. But I need to give a special shout out to a listener of the show, Justin Giallo. Justin's actually the guy that alerted me to David J. Scal's book coming up and that he was looking for places to maybe talk about it and that sort of thing. Without Justin really kind of pushing me in that direction, I wouldn't have even thought to reach out to the guy. So, Justin, thank you for making that happen. David was awesome. I had a really good time chatting with him. I've got a number of his books here, and I don't think you're going to be disappointed. His writing style is really unique uh, compared to some of the other fantastic film historians out there like Gary Rhodes or Tom Weaver or Gregory Mank, who are also all really good. But Scal's got a, a particular style of delivering the information that I think you're going to enjoy. Listeners, I'll make sure there are links in the show notes, Amazon affiliate links in the show notes to David Scal's work. If you want to add any of it to your library, please consider using the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. I did that in last week's episode as well. So have at it, man. I think you're going to enjoy everything that you find. As far as the Vault of Horror show, okay, I don't normally do like birthday greetings or anything like that, but I'm actually recording this part of the podcast on September 9th which is Larry Underwood's birthday. Larry was the man who brought the Vault of Horror to the table. I'm so glad to have him, not just as a friend, but as a frequent contributor to the show. He really knows his anthologies. It was a real treat to talk about the Vault of Horror with him. That movie, you know, the more I think about it, the more I really, really liked it. I think it might be one of my absolute favorite amicus horror films really cool. And I think it's great that you had a chance to read the uh, Midnight Madness story that the vampire story from the Vault of Horror is based on. I really hope you get an opportunity to see the film. Highly recommend it. I also appreciate you coming by the Monster Kid Movie Club. You know, this is something that I do for fun and I want people to feel like they can come by for fun. If you had family business, it's all good. We're going to be here next week or the following week or the week after that. And this upcoming week, we've got some great films lined up. We'll talk about that here later on in the show. Tom, thanks again for writing in. Again, listeners, you can find Tom over at GoForthAndGame.com. I'll go ahead and play a promo for his podcast here in a moment. I will tell you this, and I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag, Tom, but he and I are talking about me appearing on his show at least once for some stuff coming up. So stay tuned for that as well. Listeners, if you want to be cool like Tom, you can always email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and I'll have the monster in the machine. Read your email here on the show and we'll address it for everybody here. Or if you want, if you don't want to hear the monster in the machine, but you want to hear your own voice on the show instead, you can always call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. This information, of course, is available on our website. Tom, thanks again, man. 
Good evening, Monster Kids. This is the Count. I'm here with some friends to tell you about our favorite board and card game podcast. It's Go Forth and Game. Tom and Ryan talk about all things gaming with special emphasis on interviews with game designers and publishers. What do you think about this, my tall, gaunt friend? Go Forth Game! Good! And what about you, my undead comrade? I think Go Forth and Game is the most entertaining podcast about board and card games that I've come across in 4,522 years. So, if you enjoy listening to two monster kids discuss topics like abstract games, the best family games, game schooling, various game mechanics, and of course, monster-themed games, then you should give Go Forth and Game a try. That's GoForthAndGame.com, available on iTunes and Spotify. The creators of Tales from the Crypt and the author of Psycho have teamed up to present one of the most frightening film fantasies you will ever endure. Welcome to Uh, the house that dripped blood. Turn the knob. Open the door. Step past the bones and don't venture beyond the light. Terror waits for you in every room. Uh, The house that dripped blood. No one has lived here in a long, long time, but many have tried and died. The previous owners are all still around, and they can't wait to meet you. The house that dripped blood. You can come in any time, but you can't leave until they let you. (laughs) A Midnight Encore from Filmways rated PG. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Episode 2 of Ultra Q begins with scenic shots of the Awashima Kaijo Ropeway, a cable car system that enables tourists to glimpse the wild monkeys of the island. One such excursion is interrupted by the appearance of a gigantic monkey who we learn has been befriended by an employee of the Wild Monkey Research Lab named Goro. Goro inadvertently fed the monkey a walnut potion that promoted its incredible growth. June and Ipe are pressed into a helicopter flight by Yuriko's boss at the newspaper, and they obtain fantastic photos of the supersized simian, which is also named Goro. When the human Goro is arrested for stealing food for his enormous pal, the monstrous monkey goes on a rampage. It seems likely that neither Goro will enjoy a happy ending unless some sort of creative solution is reached. Goro and Goro, which first aired January 9, 1966, establishes a gorgeous sense of place in the Japanese countryside and highlights the sense of camaraderie that exists among the team of Jun, Ipe, and Yuriko. 
The team expands here with the addition of Seki Desku, Yuriko's boss, played by Yoshifumi Tajima, who exhibits a surprising generosity for someone in his position of authority. Fans of Japanese cinema will probably recognize Yoshio Tsuchiya, a favorite character actor of both Ishiro Honda and Akira Kurosawa, as one of the monkey research scientists. And eagle-eyed Ultraman fans will catch a fleeting glimpse of Masanari Nihei, who would go on to play Ide, or Ito in the American dub, as a frightened milk truck driver. And according to many sources, the Goro costume was in fact the same basic suit used in King Kong vs. Godzilla with the obvious addition of a tail and elongated face. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. wonder of the world. Atragon, an earth mover, a flying fortress, a submarine. Atragon, technology's newest, fights all the powers of black magic. The mysterious submerged continent of Mu attacks our world. Number 23 of the Mu Empire. This earthquake is not accidental. Terror panics civilization. As cataclysmic forces clash, Atragon in color. Warning Godzilla versus the Thing, a shattering motion picture, not for the weak of heart. Here, in all its astounding realism, is a soul shocking experience. How much terror can you stand? What was this thing of unbelievable and unequaled terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength versus supernatural evil? Godzilla versus the thing. See the war of the giants. See the birth of the world's most terrifying monster. See armies of the world destroyed by the thing. The producers of Godzilla versus the thing issue warning to those who cannot take its full horror. To you with guts, you must see Godzilla vs. The Thing from the beginning in color scope from American International. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Tribute was paid to the star of today's movie, The Maze, Richard Carlson, in FM 142, shortly after his passing in November of 1977. Let's see what Uncle Forey had to say about this monster movie icon. Very sad. The third science fiction, fantasy, and horror movie convention. My luncheon table. A fan sitting at it said, Why don't we ever see Richard Carlson at one of these conventions? He was the quintessential horror film actor of the 50s. I thought to myself, why, he's right. As fantasy film after fantasy film flashed through my mind which had been made in the 50s and in which Richard Carlson had been the hero. The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Riders of the Stars, The Maze, The Magnetic Monster. It came from outer space. And on either side of the 50s, he'd been in Ghost Breakers, Hold That Ghost, Beyond Tomorrow, The Amazing Mr. X, 
Bird Eye Gordon's The Tormented, George Powell's The Power, and Ray Harryhausen's Valley of Gwangi. Yes, of course, an effort should be made to rescue Richard Carlson from limbo, to bring him out of hiding like Kirk Allen, John Agar, Robert Clark, Francis Lederer, Anne Robinson, Nina Barr, and others in recent years. I determined the next day I'd start to do something about it. But today is the next day, and my wife woke me up with the bad news that she had just read that Richard Carlson died the day after Thanksgiving. Certainly nothing to be thankful for. But I am grateful that I got to know him well enough to have a luncheon with him, during which I learned that, like me, he had read Amazing Stories magazine when he was a boy, and was a science fiction fan himself. He performed admirably in Bradbury's Outer Space and the 3D horror film The Maze, and altogether was in over 55 films since his first, Young and Heart, in 1938. As a young man, six months after graduating from college, he opened a theater where he wrote, produced, and directed and acted in three plays. On the Broadway stage, he appeared in The Ghost of Yankee Doodle. The fan at my table probably unknowingly offered about as good an epitaph as a star of fantastic films could ask for. He was a quintessential actor of the 50s. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Kenny, once again, you're knocking it out of the park. Richard Carlson is one of those guys, like I said at the top of the show, that's just charismatic. He's fun to watch. He's a great actor. I have to admit, I haven't seen him in as many non-genre roles as I probably should, but I love what he does when it comes to horror and science fantasy and science fiction. I just adore his work. He's a heck of a guy. Riders to the Stars, you know, he co-directed that? That movie needs a lot more attention. It's really good. The Magnetic Monster, one of these days, I'm going to cover the Office of Scientific Investigation films here on the show. They are just a lot of fun, and Carlson's involved in the first two, so, you know, bingo, great stuff. While listening to your segment, Kenny, it reminded me of something that happened, and I'm not kidding, six years ago. It's been that long. Six years ago, back when Christopher R. Mim was still doing the monthly Mimiverse Bonfire podcasts, they had a conversation about something and Richard Carlson's name came up and I can't remember if they didn't know his name, but they knew who he was, or they knew his name, but they didn't know who he was. There was some sort of confusion about who Richard Carlson was. Now, I know in retrospect... Mim knows who Carlson is. It's just, you know, spur of the moment, it comes up, you're like, ah, 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 you know, and I don't blame him, whatever. But I thought it would be funny to use that opportunity to put together my own little audio clip explaining who Richard Carlson was. I whipped up this piece, which you can find on my SoundCloud page, which I last accessed six years ago when I put this on there. And, well, I'll get a copyright strike when I upload this to YouTube, but whatever. If it makes you smile... It's worth it. Richard Carlson was born in April 1912. This graduate of the University of Minnesota began working in film in 1935 and started flirting with the genre in movies like The Ghostbreakers and Hold That Ghost in the 40s. He did a Hammer film called Whispering Smith Investigates in 1952. It was a thriller, not quite a genre film, but that's okay. Then 1953 happened. Richard Carlson appeared as the lead in The Magnetic Monster. It was a movie about a magnetic monster, and in it, Richard Carlson fought The Magnetic Monster. That movie was the first part of the Office of Scientific Investigation series of films. He'd appear as a different character in the next one as well. That was Riders to the Stars. 
Now, he died in that one, but Richard Carlson also directed the movie, so that's okay. Now, he took another leading role in 1953's It Came From Outer Space. Directed by Jack Arnold, the film was in 3D, so Richard Carlson could reach out and touch the film audience. And he'd do it again for Jack Arnold the next year in 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. He braved the Amazonian waters, fought the Gill Man, and won. Yeah. Richard Carlson continued to work in the movies and on television. He did some episodes of Climax, he played the lead in Mackenzie's Raiders, and even appeared in the Kill My Love episode of Thriller, you know, the show hosted by Boris Karloff. In 1969, he was back on the big screen with a big monster when he found himself in the Valley of Guanji. Ray Harryhausen provided most of the movie magic in that film, but no magic was needed when Richard Carlson was on screen. He's Richard Carlson. Richard Carlson was an everyman who got the job done while getting the girl. In Creature from a Black Lagoon, he got Julie Adams. In It Came From Outer Space, he got to spend some quality time with Barbara Rush. In The Magnetic Monster, he has Jean Byron. She was in Invisible Invaders with John Agar, but that's another story. Richard Carlson saved the world in 3D, but he could have done it in 2D if he wanted to. You see, Richard Carlson took on all monsters, be they magnetic, rubber-suited, or stop-motion. You can't stop Richard Carlson with aliens. You can't stop Richard Carlson with the Gill Man. You can't stop Richard Carlson because he's Richard f***ing Carlson. Can a man step away from his past into a future free from fear? Or must a dead past return, making of every living moment a time tortured, tormented? (laughs) Tormented, holding you spellbound for the she-ghost of Haunted Island. of desire overshadowed by nightmares. Can a dead love's lust destroy a man? Or can a man defy the she-ghost of Haunted Island? It's going to be just as though you never existed. I'm going to marry Meg. But at the wedding rehearsal was one uninvited guest. I'll never let you marry Meg. You belong to me, Tom. You belong to a ghost. Tom Stewart killed me! Tom Stewart killed me! Breakers Incorporated. You make them, we shake them. Bob Hope speaking. Yes, Paulette Goddard's a partner in this firm. What? You want me to send her around? <laughs> Listen, if I could tell Paulette what to do, I wouldn't send her to your house. Sucker. You know, I never knew there were so many ghosts roaming around loose until Paulette and I got into the Ghost Breakers. 
believe me, the cat in the canary was a pink tea compared to this picture. It all starts on one terrible night. Basil Rathbone must be giving a party. That's the night that Paulette inherits a ghostly ancient castle off the ghost, I mean the coast of Cuba. The place is filled with mummies and spooks that walk at midnight. There are murders and death warnings planned to frighten Paulette and me, but we ain't frightened. I'll match you to see who faints first. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Listeners, you know, any chance that I have to talk about anything that could be even remotely Lovecraftian, I'm going to jump at it. So when Jonathan Inbody's like, let's talk about the maze, I'm like, I'm, I'm all in, man. I love this movie. Uh, spoiler. I love this movie <laughs> a lot. Uh, I do think it's got some Lovecraftian stuff, but it also stands alone. It's just a really neat little horror movie. Jonathan, welcome to the show. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me back. I, I appreciate it. I'm very excited to talk about this one. This is going to get a little very nerdy and academic, at least on my side, because I also just got the book of the maze. And there's some interesting differences, though it's most the same story just with some flourishes and details that I think are really interesting. I'm actually real curious about the novel, so I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, I want to read that as well, just because I really like the story, and I want to kind of dive a little bit more into characters like Kitty. Hopefully Kitty's still in the novel. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I will give you one spoiler. She's not. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The huh. uh, the main character of the novel is is Edith, fully, and uh, Kitty is just mentioned in the oh, novel. Oh, Okay. That is the biggest difference is most of the time in the novel, it's like it's Edith and the friends who are all there through the whole time and no Kitty, uh, as opposed to the movie where it's Kitty and Edith at first and then all the friends for like the third act. Okay. All right. Well, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, that's way too granular of, <laughs> you know, we'll get there. We'll get into it. But first... How is your podcasting going? It sir? is good. So for anybody who doesn't know, uh, I do a show called X Meets Y. Every episode, we take two randomly selected movie titles and then have half an hour to combine them into a totally new, totally original movie idea. It is chaotic kind of improv. It's all like the creative churn of ideas. It's a lot of fun to do. Also a little stressful. <laughs> but uh, coming up, we've got a theme month. Every Halloween and Christmas, I try to do like Halloween and th Christmas themed movies. But this year for Halloween, I'm going to be doing universal horror stuff. So that'll be the theme this year instead of just generic Halloween. So I'm, I'm really excited to have that coming up. 
you know, it's a fun show. I enjoy doing it, but it's also one where the longer it goes, the less ability to do it I have because I've featured so many movies on it now. You know, I, I thought that when I started MKR that that was going to happen to me, that they aren't making quote unquote classic monster movies sure. anymore because, I mean, the whole timing thing. But I find that if I just keep digging, there's still a lot out there. So you, you're good. I think you got another, I don't know, decade or so in you, if you <laughs> we'll wanted <see>. it. <laughs> Uh, oh, man. So you're a podcaster. You're also a writer. And you've got something coming up there. Let's talk about that. That is a, a, a good transition. Uh, so uh, I have. It's like I've been doing this for a while or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <I> don't know. <laughs> and it's made even better when we both point it out. <laughs> Segway. That's my, okay. that's my favorite thing to do when I'm uh, talking with someone is just directly state the subtext of the conversation. <laughs> so, but yes, I have a short story called The Lone Sharks that is being published uh, as part of a anthology called Full Metal Horror Volume 3 from uh, Zombie Pirate Publishing. They've published a couple of my short stories before. The words I just used to describe it to you uh, before we started is uh, like a Serling-esque morality tale with kind of bizarro horror, uh, I guess Croft Brothers inspired kind of surreal trappings. I'm very proud of it. It's strange and darkly funny and also fairly serious and an interesting examination of uh, grief and of death. So <laughs> if that makes anybody want to read it, check out uh, Full Metal Horror Volume 3. It comes out September 15th. You can get it on Amazon wherever you can do pre-orders now. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, but I want to say just real quick, one of the reasons why I liked having you on the show so much, Jonathan, is because you'll say something like, it's full of grief and death, and they just start laughing. Um, <laughs> I have which, a very bleak sense you know, of humor. <laughs> it's, it's that sense, you know, I dig it, man. <laughs> I, I, we'll, we'll circle back around to that, too, because uh, the maze has some, <laughs> some incredibly dark humor <laughs> at points. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I do see there is a listing for it right now on Amazon, Full Metal Horror 3, The Unknown, edited by Adam Bennett and Sam M. Phillips. And like I said, there will be a link in the show notes for that as well, even on Amazon affiliate links. So. That whole collection is full of authors who I've been published with before, whose work I've I've really loved previously. So I'm very excited to see what uh, everybody does with uh, all of those uh, stories. Then I'll make sure there are links to mm -hmm, volumes please. one and two in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Now, podcaster, writer, filmmaker. I always want to say Renaissance Man. I, I was getting there. I was getting there. I did, I did it last time, and I was like, oh, don't do that joke again. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I also have a short film. It is a like universal horror-style throwback, black and white, classic horror short called The Lunatic. It is basically the, the general one-line pitch is that a man goes to a wealthy eccentric's house because that guy has promised him proof of the supernatural. And that is going to be screening as part of, oh, I always forget the specific name of the, is it the? Oh, are you talking about my thing? Yes, because oh, thought... <laughs> you do the astronomy club ones too, and then you do the... Right. No, I thought you were going to tell me about a screening that's coming up for him. I'm getting really excited. But no, we're going to be showing it on our stream as well, uh, the Monster Kid Movie Club. This Saturday, it's going to be part of the lineup. You're going to be able to see it with movies like Nosferatu, The Ghoul, Strangler of the Swamp, and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So mm. it's got some great company. It's a fun little movie. I've seen it. I worked on it a little bit. It's mm -hmm. really cool. Uh, it is in the same vein as your previous film, The Mummy Movie. Yes, Unearthed. Yeah, Unearthed. It's very um, reminiscent of the Universals, but it's not just uh, a parody or an homage. I mean, it's still got some cool stuff to it and some really great performances. Yeah. I really like the performances in The Lunatic a lot. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of it. 
these two are kind of going to be of a piece. I'm not sure if I'll go back to this series of short films that are all kind of genre homage to universal stuff. But my basic idea is just I wanted to take some of the classic monster iconography and imagery and just kind of see if I could remix it in an interesting way, make it feel fresh and still make it be a story driven, character driven experience that still has the like monster content. And I think it's been a largely successful experiment. I'm, I'm very happy with how the lunatic turned out. I have a couple scripts for some other ones in the quote unquote new monsters series of short films. We'll see if I ever make them. I don't know, but we'll see. I think that's the key. You mentioned it just a second ago that you wanted to do these small character driven pieces. And, and that's the key. I love the monsters as much as the next guy. I mean, I really do. But would I love Creature from the Black Lagoon as much if you didn't have that love triangle kind of sort of happening above water? You right. know, I, I don't know if I would. I really like all the performances in that movie. I feel like the characters are sincere and well-developed and well, extremely well-performed. And I think that's the key to a lot of these monster movies. The monsters are great, but you really have to have like a Lon Chaney Jr. grounding the Wolfman. You really have to have those characters in place that are non-monstrous to really keep Yeah, me. You know what I mean? Universal horror is so founded on like theater and acting. The movies are so thoroughly carried by the strength of the actors that's something that the more that I watch any universal horror, like even stuff that I haven't seen before or stuff that I have watching it again, every time what I always end up thinking is like these actors are professional to the degree that it is like they're carrying every last bit of credibility just by how seriously they are delivering the lines in stuff. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that can get like kitsch or goofy to to modern audiences, but because the actors carry it so seriously, you still feel the seriousness of it, even if normally you would be distanced by, you know, some of the effects or whatever, which depending on the movie and how cheap it was, that can so in some ways get in the way, uh, which I think we'll also circle back around to with the maze. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's not a universal movie, but the giant yes. claw, the giant claw. I feel like does work because you've got the two leads really just giving it their all. And mm -hmm. yeah, the giant claw is kind of a goofy looking Turkey marionette thing. It, lo it looks a little goofy and, and I'll give it that, but I think the bizarreness of the script helps that one too. Cause they're like an antimatter space buzzard and you're like, right. okay, I guess, but <laughs> like, nobody sure. bats an eye when they say it as absurd yeah, exactly. as that is. Mira Corday is all in, you know, mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why I like these movies so much. I didn't ask you this beforehand. We have shown unearthed before. What if we do a double feature this weekend and bring the unearthed into Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I would, I would love that because then then it would give people a direct chance to be like, hey, look, this guy's getting better. Oh, OK. <laughs> so I have to show on Earth first. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> I actually like them both. And you know how I am about mummy movies. So that's awesome. I'm just always very critical of whenever I get done with something, I think somehow inside my brain that everything that I made before that is bad. So I just, I'm very critical of my own work. Hey man, I get somebody that comes up to me and says, Hey, I just found your podcast and I started listening to the older episodes. First thing out of my mouth is I'm sorry because I, <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel the same way. So for what it's worth outside opinion, I like the unearthed quite a bit. So Thank it's a, you. it's a good one. Uh, but yeah, we'll do both of those and stay tuned listeners to the end of the episode. When we talk a little bit more about what's coming up in the monster kid movie club. Oh, man. And when you're not doing all of this stuff, you're still watching some awesome movies. And you mentioned oh, yeah. The Maze to me. And like I said in our 
in that weird intro. I don't know where I was going with it. It's got some Lovecraftian stuff, <laughs> which is there. how, yeah, you know, it's got some Lovecraftian stuff in it. It's, it's that, that's what hooked me. Then mm-hmm. I discovered that Richard Carlson's in it. I love Richard Carlson. Yes. And then I realized it was a 3D movie, which I'm fascinated with 3D movies in general, because I always want to see how the filmmakers are going to incorporate, and I just did that in air quotes, incorporate mm-hmm. the 3D effects. Because sometimes it's done nice and subtly, like in House of Wax, where you've got the fire in the front of the frame and Vincent Price running around in the background. Or it's very obvious, like in the House of Wax, when you got the guy with the yo-yo shooting the yo-yo <laughs> at the audience. You know, and, and I'm always fascinated by that. And you have some of both examples of that happening in the maze as well. We'll talk mm-hmm. about it. Uh, there's a lot to talk about the maze. But you know what? Even though I feel like I know you and the listeners have got to know you, you want to do some Classic Five? Let's. The Classic Five! The Classic Five, for people who don't know, if this is your first time listening or you just plain forgot, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show. I've got a literal deck of cards. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to keep Monster Kids talking or maybe meet some new Monster Kid friends. I am going to ask you five questions, hence the Classic Five. Are you ready to play? I am. All right, here we go. Card number one from the Kaiju Expansion Deck, which is now available for sale. You can pick up your own copy for real now. Godzilla or Gamera? Ooh, uh, hmm. I got to go with Godzilla just because I love him. But, uh, I mean, I love Gamera, too. It's <laughs> With Gamera, I always go to the 90s movies, whereas with oh, Godzilla, man. I go to, like, a wide swath of, like, depending on what I'm in the mood for, I could go for any Godzilla movie with the exception of the the Netflix anime ones, which I'm not overly fond of. So I, I got to go with Godzilla just for the, the uh, legacy quality to it. Fair enough. I love the Gamera films from the 90s. The 90s trilogy. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, those are some of the best kaiju movies ever made. I will die on the hill if I need to. masterpieces really of the genre. They really it, are. It is stunning to me that, the, that those ended up as good as they are. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right, card number two. What classic monster movie should be turned into a musical? Hmm. Maybe because I just watched it recently, but uh, The Deadly Mantis. <laughs> Fair enough. Because I can, because I could picture it. If we're doing a stage musical, I could picture them doing it like they did the ill-fated King Kong musical, where they just have a big puppet mantis on stage the whole time. Okay. <laughs> I, I want to see them turn the maze into a No, I don't know if I do or not. I, I would kind of love that, but I would also kind of, depending on how they handled the the element, I guess is what we'll say, because I don't want to get into that yet, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there's going to be a whole section of just, uh, yeah. I guess, dissecting a frog in a way. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you, you went there before I could. All right. I'm ashamed of myself for that joke. Uh, but we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Card number three. <laughs> <laughs> hammer horror or hammer sci-fi that is also a tough one for me because i i, I want to go hammer sci-fi because the Quatermass movies i love how they're so very serious and like uh not data driven exactly but they're all mystery driven in a way that i really respect like i always love when there's a sci-fi movie where the plot is largely people figuring out the science fiction or speculative element and figuring out the rules and the ways that it works and I feel like especially Quatermass in the Pit is so perfect about that. So I, I got to go Hammer Sci-Fi. They didn't do nearly as much. I wish they had done more. But Hammer Sci-Fi is really good. I'm, I'm a Hammer Horror guy, but Hammer Sci-Fi is awesome, including that incredible film, Moon Zero Two. 
<laughs> the which, classic. <laughs> which I am going to be talking about here in the near future with Alistair Oh, Hughes. really? So, yeah, oh, that'll, wow. that'll be coming up. That'll be coming up. Nice. <laughs> All right, card number four. Favorite William Castle film? Mm, it kind of changes on the day. Today I'm going to say 13 Ghosts. Listen to William Castle, whom the Saturday Evening Post calls the master of movie horror. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. And you will too. When you come to this theater and see my picture, 13 Ghosts, uh, no more dictation today. When you see 13 Ghosts, you'll be given a supernatural viewer like this which will enable you to penetrate for the first time into the spirit world. It will let you see all 13 of our weird, wonderful, and wildly assorted ghosts. Now, brace yourself as we take you across the threshold of our haunted mansion, where there's a ghost for everyone in the family. Father, mother, sister, brother. You'll be scared stiff, too, when you see what they see. Thirteen ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono, the ghost viewer. The ghost of a lion in the basement. The ghost of a murderous cook in the kitchen. Stop it! Stop it, I say! The ghost who speaks through the lips of the living. Death tonight to one of you. The evil ghost in the bedroom fighting to take possession of this beautiful girl. You'll feel all the thrills and chills of seeing one ghost multiplied by the magic number 13. There's the Blu-ray version that has the red and blue, the ghosts showing up in the different colors. That version of 13 Ghosts, it is a strangely magical experience because you really do feel like you're experiencing the movie again for the first time. And that, to me, there's something that that like brings me right back to childhood, even though I'm, I'm you know, like a kid of the 90s. Like, it still makes me feel nostalgic for a time that I was not alive for just watching 13 Ghosts in that format. I'm the same way with you. It, it varies. It really does. Castle's one of those guys that whatever the most recent film of his that I watched is like my most favorite one at the time. It's because mm-hmm. he's just so good. You know, just they're so fun. Even some of the, the non-specifically horror films that he did, I still enjoy. 13 Frightened Girls is a really fun movie, but it has nothing to do with anything monstrous or scary. Yeah, I feel like I usually go between either The Tingler or 13 Ghosts, and then everything else is like the tier two below that for me, just because both of those are such in my mind, instant classics where it's yeah. like, they just know exactly what they're doing. Some of, I think some of Castle's other stuff feels like it's in some ways delaying itself to get to the gimmick in some cases, or to get to the more grimy. What, once he starts getting into like the more crime driven or, or um, even some of his Westerns, it feels like they're kind of buying time to a certain degree that the Tingler and 13 ghosts never feel like they're doing that. It feels like they're just kind of bursting off the screen at you. I feel like once he was able to, I don't know, kind of let the restraints of, of studio pictures 
go, he was really able to kind of do his thing. Um, I, yeah. I do like his westerns. I do like his crime movies. He did Hollywood Story in 1950 with my girl, Julie Adams. It's a great film. I still haven't watched that. Oh, man, it's so good. It's so good. It's not a horror movie. Otherwise, we would have talked about it here on the show repeatedly at this point. <laughs> and I may still do it. It's got Julie Adams. It's got Henry Hull. It's got footage from Phantom of the Opera in it. Uh, it's It's got a bunch of horror connections. So maybe I'll do a one-off. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway. Uh, final question, final card. This is actually one that came up during last week's Monster Kid Movie Club because we do a round of the Classic Five there as well. Uh, this question, it's a monster bash, monster rally style question because we all love it when monsters meet up, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is, the card is, what two monsters that never had a chance to meet up would you like to see meet up in a movie? Not restricted to studio. It could be anything. Yeah, this is like an embarrassment of riches question where there's so many possible options that are bubbling to mind like... Uh, I mean, you know what? I'm going to go with first instincts also because I just mentioned Deadly Mantis, but Deadly Mantis is going to be one of them. And I'm going to try and find something that doesn't fit to fight Deadly Mantis at all. Uh, Deadly Mantis and Dracula. That's what we're doing. <laughs> this this is actually right in your wheelhouse with what you do on your podcast. Oh, yes. Very wow. much. Wow. Dracula and the Deadly Mantis. I'm trying to... Man, that just kind of opens up all kinds of possibilities in my brain. I, I just, all I want is a scene where the deadly mantis lifts up one of the brides of Dracula and bites their head off. You know, it's <laughs> classic stuff. Like, you gotta. I'm in. <laughs> Somebody make that movie, write that story, make it a comic book. I don't care. I just want to see that now, too. I'm a simple man with simple needs. And, and what I need is the deadly mantis to bite off a vampire's head. <laughs> Fair enough, and a great note to end the Classic Five on. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, brilliant. All right. Let's switch gears here. Let's talk about this uh, 1953 3D masterpiece known Mm -hmm. as The Maze. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Richard Carlson. If I look somewhat older and more drawn than I have in my recent pictures, it's because of the harrowing experiences I've been having here in The Maze. The Maze is the first picture in three dimension that delves into the weird and terrifying world of the supernatural. If you're familiar with the exciting effects that can be achieved with 3D, you can imagine what happens when something from the great beyond reaches right out of the screen to clutch at you. Oh, and one more thing. After you've seen the maze, please don't reveal to your friends the secret of its story or its startling climax. Because you see, we think the maze will amaze you. It was the last film directed by, last feature film directed by William Cameron Menzies. I really enjoy his work. Uh, he did Things to Come, which is one of my favorite science fiction films of all time. Uh, so to see him kind of get into a creature feature style mode here with this and some of his other work, it's great. Uh, so he's the director, and we already mentioned Richard Carlson as being one of the leads. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily call him the lead. Yeah, it's it's kind of a three-hander where it's him, Kitty, and Aunt Edith are all kind of the lead. And then Aunt Edith is also the narrator, which is really odd, the way that they handle that stuff. That, I think, is the only thing that is a, like, 
I genuinely don't understand why those scenes of her narrating doing those little bridges between scenes are in the movie. I think it's just because Aunt Edith is the narrator of the book. I liked it, though. I liked it because it gave the movie an edge of unpredictability to me. Because Mm. even though I feel like Kitty is the one that's really driving a lot of the story here, Kitty is the one who's trying to find out what happened to her fiancé. Kitty's the one that decides you're going to stay an extra day despite what the fiancé says. But the story's being told to us by somebody other than Kitty. So there's always this, the first time I saw this anyway, there's always this thing in the back of my brain that, made me think that maybe Kitty's not safe. Oh, sure. Maybe something's going to happen to Kitty, and that's why Edith is telling the story and not Kitty. And I really appreciated that about this. Edith is my favorite character in the whole movie because she just seems like she is so level. She knows exactly the way to talk to Kitty, exactly the way to talk to Gerald. She knows exactly how to work her way through this situation in a way that is really refreshing. Because like, I, I like the character of Kitty, but at the same time, there's a part where there's a section of the movie where she just keeps trying to go in the maze and people just keep turning her around. Yeah. Whereas Aunt Edith, I think in a slightly smarter way is just like, well, let's just check out the bedroom that they usually have locked. Like that feels like a thing that we could do under their notice. You know, she is the uh, better investigator of the two for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I I will give you that. So let's talk a little bit about the setup for the film. Richard Carlson, he's engaged uh, to Veronica Hurst. She's the actress playing Kitty. Carlson is playing Gerald. Uh, So Jerry and Kitty are engaged. And uh, Aunt Edith is Kitty's aunt. She's very friendly with Gerald. Gerald calls her Aunt Edith all the time. So they're all buds. And Gerald's got a handful of friends as well. And things are going great. Engagement is done. Wedding's coming up. And then he gets a letter from some branch of the family he has not had a lot of contact with over the years. Saying somebody is sick, you got to come quick. There's a couple weeks until the wedding. He's going to go check it out. And he never comes home. He tries to break off the engagement. There's something hanky going on. And Kitty is not going to let her man go. So she and Aunt Edith go to investigate and discover that he has aged quite a bit in a very short amount of time. And he's changed as well. Yeah, it's 20 years and two months is, I think, the way that Kitty says it. And he he does look visibly older as well. And and I think also Richard Carlson, he just seems so dour and carries everything so heavily in the por- parts where he's after he's supposed to have aged that you do really believe it. He does a good job of coming across as much older than at the beginning. Oh, yeah. And then later on, when the facade starts to crack a little when he's with his friends again, he kind of goes back to the more carefree acting uh, in a way that really works, too. It's what we were saying a second ago. There's something about the performances in this that, especially from Carlson, that really grounds the movie. He does such a great job because he's light. He's on his feet. He's having a great time. He's dancing. And then he goes through the change at the castle and he just looks like he's got something holding him down. He just looks heavy and tired. And it's not just the subtle makeup they have on him. He is... Mm-hmm really portraying this guy who has this horrible responsibility literally weighing him down. They do a great job with the butler, uh, William. Is it Michael Pate, I think is his name? He also really carries the, like you said, the weight of responsibility, which is something that that mentions prominently is that everyone who works at Castle Craven looks that way. They all have the kind of slumped shoulders and like resigned, the resigned sense of duty. And I feel like Carlson and William, I just said the actor's name, but now I forgot, carry it very well. Michael Pate. uh, Specifically. Michael Pate, yes. 
Yeah, they both do a fantastic job. You know, they're not the only people there. There's a few other people that help around the, the castle. Uh, we just lost a cleaning lady beforehand. Before everything started, there was a cleaning lady that uh, had an accident and then died. Uh, so th there's some danger here as well. We don't see anybody physically get killed or anything on screen. But through the dialogue, we learned that there are some pretty dangerous things happening here. And we got to keep people out of that maze. And the maze is this mm -hmm. overgrown you know, hedge maze that this castle has in the yard. But nobody's allowed in it. And it, it looks so much like the maze from The Shining. It is truly eerie how much it is shot the way that Kubrick shoots the hedge maze. It is really, really strange. Huh. Yeah, it, it looks so much like it. Like the one kind of uh, high angle shot from the broken window in the secret passage, like about halfway through the film, looking down as the light moves through the maze looks so much like a sequence in The Shining when Jack is looking at the model of the maze at the same time as his wife and son are wandering through the maze outside. It, which also there's an interesting connection to The Shining as well in that this was written by a guy whose last name is Ullman. And Ullman is also the guy who interviews Jack Torrance for the job at the Overlook in The Shining. You think that was intentional? I don't know. It's interesting because it does feel like if anyone would have the kind of film literacy to make that an intentional homage, it would be Kubrick. But it's not quite solid enough that I'm that I would be comfortable saying absolutely he saw the maze and tailored that to it. But it would make sense if he was looking up like ways to shoot hedge mazes in cinema because this is one of the only movies before that 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 also did. Well, and I also wonder about the character name, too. I, I, I have to admit, yeah. I have not read the Shining novel. I, I need to soon. But King is a monster kid. And I'd be more apt to believe that he did do it on purpose to, to have yeah, that right. character named after the screenwriter of the maze. So an interesting little connection, potentially, potentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen King, if you're listening, why don't you give me a call? Let me know if that was on purpose. Yeah, please. Because I'm sure he <laughs> listens. Oh, uh, certainly. <laughs> What's he got going yeah, on? Yeah, you know. <laughs> but this is also supposedly based on a true story, which is something that I didn't know until I was, I was just looking at like IMDb trivia and reading some reviews of this. But I guess there's a castle called Glamis Castle in Scotland. There was like legends around the area that the like Lord of the Castle would play cards with the devil. And there was like a deformed son who would wander the grounds at night uh, with a lantern. It's really interesting how much this movie feels like classic ghost story and then takes the kind of turn into, I guess what I would call cozy Lovecraft at the end. Sure. Yeah, it does have that kind of vibe. It's, it's got a little bit of a cozy mystery feel, a little bit of an old dark house feel. There's a handful of different things that kind of go into what makes this movie effective for me. The cozy Lovecraft is a great way to put it. There, there's even some wonky science that we get dropped on us kind of randomly at the end by Richard Carlson, which I don't know if that's really how the human embryo develops. Um, uh, it is not. Yeah. That is, that's based on, I think they're called Haeckel's drawings, but it's something that was accepted as science at the time that has now been discredited. Yeah, I, was, I was being facetious. No, I know <laughs> the human embryo does not go through every stage of evolution while it's gestating. I, I know that. I was just excited to get the, the chance to say ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. So. <laughs> Bless you. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we get some weird wonky science dropped on us as well. This movie, 
it does kind of fall apart at the end, sadly for me, because of one very specific thing, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But I want to ask you, when the first time was you saw this? Well, interestingly, that kind of ties back into the element that we will eventually get to and probably spend a good long while picking apart, because I originally saw a gif of the ending of this and was like, oh, that seems interesting. I'll have to check that out. And then now, as I, when I watched this movie, it, it really, it was a couple of years ago now, and I I really fell in love with how much it feels like a classic kind of gothic horror mystery. And at the same time, it also, it feels like a throwback to German expressionism. The expansive sets, the depth to the way that it's shot, I think to tie in with the 3D, it just feels so, the, the eeriness and the dread that they build for the first two acts is so effective. And then I think what makes this movie really interesting academically is the what some people consider a harsh change in tone for the last probably about 10 minutes, which again, we'll get into, but I like both parts. I like the beginning and I like the end, but I like them for different reasons. And that's one of the things that kind of draws me back to this movie over and over all the dark stairways and the hidden passage and the darkness of the maze with the light running through it. There's so much haunting eerie imagery in this movie that is so good. Oh yeah. And it, it makes me wish that, more early weird fiction stuff was adapted in this way because can you imagine like a version of this for like a Lovecraft story? If shadow over Innsmouth got this treatment in the fifties, it would be incredible. Yeah. It would end up like this. Yeah. And I, it just makes me wish that there had been a whole subgenre of just Lovecraftian horror, like black and white, maybe 3d inspired by German expressionism, Lovecraftian horror stuff in the fifties. It's such an interesting one film movement in that way. This movie is so confident. It, it knows what it's doing and it just kind of does it to the fullest of its ability and whether or not it works is another discussion, but it really does make me long for more of this type of movie from this time. Yeah. And you basically said everything that was right in my head. Uh, somehow you got in there and just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> just scooped uh, it all out. Yeah, which, you know, saves me some time. I agree with you 100%. I think that this style of filmmaking, that Menzies was a master. He was really good at what he did. This style of filmmaking, the way it was shot, and there were obviously some budgetary limitations. But because it's something that is shot with so much shadow and darkness, you kind of don't really notice that until you get to the end. You don't notice that, yeah, this is clearly a set somewhere and there's maybe even a matte painting here or there or something like that. But you don't notice any of that because of how it's shot. The sets are shot so nicely and because of the way they're built, too, because Menzies was a production designer. I believe he's the guy that they invented the term production designer for because he did Gone with the Wind and a couple other things. And the sets are built so beautifully. And because they're just so wide, you really get a sense of the depth. It feels like it took a long time for 3D films to get back to that sense of depth. And he has such a good sense of texture, too. Like, all of the furniture in all of the sets, it's all, like, ornate carved wood. Like, it all looks like you could reach out and touch it. It's a really good use of, I guess, the diorama sense of 3D. I think 3D cinema works best when it feels like you're looking in on like a shadow box. Yeah, I agree. And I think he understands that much better than I think even modern filmmakers working with 3d do to a certain extent. 
I think that's one of the reasons why, and not not that I think the story was amazing, but technically Avatar works really well because it has a lot of that stuff floating in the foreground. The yep. uh, the underground, the underground, the underwater scenes in Creature from the Black Lagoon work incredibly well in 3D because you see yep. the fish floating in the foreground as well as stuff happening in the background. It's not just you know a gimmick shot here and there, which this movie does have. There's a couple of yes. things. I mean, the opening credits are designed to be seen in 3D, but there's also a moment before. Gerald gets notified that he's got to go back and, and check on his family. There's a dance sequence and they're watching some people perform and there's a lot of swinging the girl right up into the camera and back again and back again. Yeah, it's a gimmicky thing, but I feel like you can't really have a 3D movie from this era without having at least one of those in there. Fortunately, this movie's yeah. got so much more to offer than just that. Well, and even the the one that you get later with the bat, I think is... Oh, that yeah. I think is... That one is almost distracting in how obviously, hey, this is 3D it is. But if that's going to be the worst that the 3D gimmickry gets, I think that's fine. Like I can sure. I can certainly set that aside for the sake of how well the 3D is 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 used even just in the even just watching it in 2D, the sense of depth and texture that you get gets you the feeling that you that you is clearly intended for you to get if you're watching it in 3D or I- 2D. Agreed. Yeah, the, those two elements, they, they kind of earmark this movie as, yeah, it was made in 3D. But yeah. like you said, there's so much more. I love when they're in the maze at the end at night and they're trying to find each other and they're going through the hedge maze and all that. And you get the texture, you get a little bit of that, you get the darkness, you get the different levels of depth of them walking through them. It just it's wonderful. It's so good. That whole sequence, I wish there was like I wish the whole last half hour was just in the maze because they shoot it so ominously from above and from the side when she's trying to go into the entrance and Gerald brings her out or the gardener calls her out. And then that last section in the maze is gorgeous. It just goes by so quickly. Like the whole ending of this, to me, that's more of a complaint than any of the stuff regarding, you know, what we'll get to. I think the quickness of it makes it so much more jarring and makes the element work less good than it should have. I think if they had played up the sense of like, well, frankly, the Minotaur idea that you're trapped in a maze with a monster and maybe it knows its way around better than you do. And you're trying to get out, but you just keep getting turned around. The first time I watched this movie, when all of the friends arrived just after the intermission, I thought what we were going to have then would be a third act of everyone out in the maze, like in a panic, the quote unquote monster terrorizing them to a certain degree. And that, that made me really excited. And then it just kind of doesn't want to do that. And I understand that it doesn't, but I feel like it almost would work better if it did. I would have liked that. It's so tough. Like I said, I like the methodical eerie way that the mystery is constructed. And I like the kind of black comedy way that it resolves. I wish there was some kind of a bridge between them to make the switch between the tones less jarring. I feel like there could have been just, just a little bit more between, like you said, some something to uh, kind of stitch them together. Especially since we get some dialogue during the third act from, it might be the butler, talking about how somebody was really scared and he couldn't stop him and that sort of thing. And I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit of that to play out a little bit more on screen. Just just something. For me, it's the friends showing up really helps the movie. And I wish, like the book, the friends had been there the whole time. Oh, really? Because okay. in the book, Gerald has called his friends out to Craven Castle. And Edith is included among the friends and Edith knows that he called off his engagement with Kitty. So she wants to find out why, but with the book, it's much more of a slow build of all of the friends 
kind of talking amongst themselves and being like, okay, something's really, really off here. Something is up. There's no carpets in the whole castle, except this one that goes up the main staircase. That's like waterproof. That's like rubber. And all of the furniture and all the rooms is like put far against the wall away from the doors. Like there's so many little elements that are carried over into the movie, but your attention isn't drawn to them in the same way as the book draws your attention to it. And it makes it so eerie and and such an interesting, like not exactly an ontological mystery. Cause it's not like they're, they're trying to figure out how they got to Craven castle or whatever, but it makes it such an interesting mystery of like, it gives you all these little details that don't make sense until suddenly they do. And the way that the reveal is handled in the book is much different than the movie as well in a way that makes it feel less jarring, the switch over. But in the movie, when the friends show up, specifically the doctor, Bert, when he starts talking to everyone saying like, look, okay, something is really, really wrong with Gerald. Don't cross him, whatever you do, because he actually might be prone to violence because of the, like how harsh the change has been between his former self and his current self. That the drama from that works really well. And I wish that that had been stretched out over the beginning section when it's much more just Kitty and Edith slowly exploring the mansion, which I like. Again, it switches gears too often and too quickly. It just needs a little connective tissue between the tones. You are absolutely right. The tone does change significantly. I think in some ways it works because you can kind of see Gerald maybe starting to slip back a little bit and he's kind of happy to see his friends, but then he realizes, oh, wait, it's 10 till 11 and we got to lock everybody in their rooms now. You know, and he immediately yeah. switches back. So, I mean, you kind of see that happen a little bit, but yeah, a little bit more would have been nice to see them all kind of come together. I'm fascinated by the book now, but before we talk about that, you've mentioned the element quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what would happen. Yeah. Even though we said a moment ago that we wish there might have been more 50s black and white movies done of Lovecraft stories, some Lovecraftian adaptations. I fear that so many of them would have ended this way. That's always the trouble. Yeah. With weird fiction in general, I've been reading a bunch of it lately. And the weird fiction story that I kept thinking of when I was watching this this time was uh, House on the Borderland from William Hope Hodgson. Okay. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar, but it has like these weird pig demon monsters. And I kept thinking about what that would be like in a 50s movie and wanting it and wanting like a black and white version of that story and then being like, oh, the costumes would not, unless it had a lot of money behind it, the costumes would not carry that that dread and that eeriness. Like you said, I think it would be the result more often than not of uh, cosmic horror stuff being adapted at this time, it would come across as really awkward and stilted and obvious costumes and visible seams and all that kind of stuff that I I don't know. It's, I'm so torn between it because I want so many more of them, but at the same time, like this movie shows the possible downfall of that idea. I'm definitely glad that the first Lovecraft adaptation was done by somebody who knew how to work the budget and work the studio, being Roger Corman with The Mm -hmm. Haunted Palace, which is a fantastic film. But I do think you're right. I think that we would have had some terrible costume reveals, um, some silly looking makeup, just not great execution towards the end. Yeah. When you look at things like humanoids from the deep, yeah. you know, like that is probably the closest to a Lovecraft adaptation of the more monstery kind of Lovecraft stuff as you get for a little while. And I like that movie, but I also like it in the same way that I like the element in this movie 
because it it has that dark comedy kitsch factor to this that I think is intentional, but I think is the result of Menzies looking at the book and looking at the budget and saying like, okay, I guess I have to push this in a dark comedy direction because I'm not sure otherwise that it'll read. Sure. That um, makes sense. But uh, I guess, should we... We gave the spoiler we, warning. <laughs> yeah, should we give like... Should we try and give a little more of the story before we get to the element or should we just dive into full spoiler discussion of the element? <laughs> well, I mean, we got the setup. We talked about the French showing up. What else do you think people should hear? Or what do you think um, we need to know here? Or is there anything else you wanted to comment on? So you mentioned the rules before. The doors are locked at night. There's the section where Kitty is locked in the room and she sees the shadows from outside of people coming down the stairs. You hear kind of a like a kind of a thumping, kind of a dragging sound. And then she sees the light in the maze from the secret passageway, like the broken window of the secret passageway that she finds in her room. So like you have this idea that at night there's something roaming the grounds and there's a real eerie quality to it. I think that's all I really wanted to get across is, is just a couple more of the specific elements of the mystery itself. Because if anyone is, is listening to this and has not seen the maze, I would strongly advise that you watch it before you hear about the element because it is a double-edged sword. It might make you more interested and it might make you less interested. And I think it's best to go in pure. You know, this is one of the movies that I am constantly suggesting being shown at the Lovecraft Film Festival here. It should. And I would I would insist that I introduce it uh, or I would, I would offer to introduce it. <laughs> but I always wonder how would I handle that? Would I give people a heads up so that when it does happen, when you do see what we're talking about here, it's not as much of a blow that the audience doesn't just start laughing, you know, yeah. because it, it does have that, that vibe. And I do worry a little bit about that. That said, I still kind of like it. Oh yeah. I, I like <laughs> it. I just like it for different reasons. Yeah. And it's yeah. So yeah, I guess, I guess let's dive right into it then. All right. Let's, uh, let's hop along down the path. Well, like I said, we gave the spoiler. Count Dracula already gave us the spoiler warning, and I'm sure I mentioned it in the intro as well, because we are about to spoil the big reveal here in the movie in that it's a frog. Yes, it is <laughs> just a frog. It's and just a frog. It's just a guy. Probably the yeah. way, that's the, the worst way, but also the best way to get it across. It is just a frog. It's not a monster frog. It's not a frog that dresses like a man and that moves all weird and does Lovecrafty things. It's just a frog. And then eventually they talk about how that frog was a man. But when we see it, especially the first shot, when she's lost in the maze, her light is out. Her and Andy are separated. Edith sees the monster that she had previously seen, like shuffling out of a room earlier when she investigates the bedroom. She screams. She faints. Kitty runs into the monster and we get a cut just from Kitty screaming to the frog, like coming out of the shadows right into your face. And I think there's a degree to which that shot really works because it's kind of nightmarish. You can't really conceive of what's going on yet. But then the next shot immediately after it's too wide and you get like, oh, right, this is a guy in an awkward costume trying to look scary and trying to hop. And it almost immediately dives into dark comedy. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And it's I think the dark comedy is intentional because. Sure. I mean, you have to. You got to lean into it, don't you? You have well, to. The. The opening scene of this movie of Gerald's dead uncle uh, with a really nice haunting shot of him like slumped over in the chair and the, the butlers kind of discussing what to do amongst themselves. The first line in the movie 
the William leans out the window and calls for Robert, who's one of the other people. But the way he says it, he says like, Robert, Robert. And it's so clear that that's a gag and he's trying to, and he's saying ribbit. Like that's the director calling his shot. I didn't catch that at first. That's, that's, um, wow. Like, it is <laughs> the most dark comedy touch ever. It's very funny when you rewatch it, but it also makes me feel like, like I said before, Menzies, I don't think, I, I think he realized he had to kind of push into the dark comedy territory to make the element work at all. Because the other thing is when the frog is seen, he freaks out and hops out of the maze and then hops up the stairs and out the window and kills himself, which is such a like almost Kafka-esque dark comedy. The idea of a frogman hopping to his death is the bleakest. It's so funny in such a genuinely sad and tragic way that it feels like that element is a joke. It just yeah. like the book, the way that the death is handled in the book, the um, Edith doesn't see the the frog man directly. Basically, a doctor comes to the house. It's implied that the frog man has died of a heart failure, some kind of natural cause. But you're also left with the possibility that um, so like in the movie of Bert, who's the doctor friend who has the gun who uh, almost takes a shot at the frog as it's hopping up the hopping through the house, but doesn't cause he's horrified by its appearance. And then William stops him and, you know, knocks the gun out of his hand. But in the book, you have a similar character named Harry who also figures out what's going on, has the gun. And the last that you see of him before you find out that uh, Sir Roger, the frog is dead is him running off into the maze with the gun. So you, you it's left with the open possibility that, what happened wasn't heart failure, but was instead Harry shooting the frog out of horror or pity. And I think that's a really interesting way to take it. But I think Menzies knows you have to see the creature. And I think Menzies just goes for the dark comedy element of it, hopping up the stairs and out the window, which is funny, but feels like such a tonal departure from the way it's handled in the book. Yeah. I also wonder, like we see it hopping up the stairs, that shot, it's just so awkward. I mean, I don't know if yeah. we're meant to think that he's, you know, the frog man thing is so freaked out that he's just stumbling around or if he genuinely was having trouble getting up those stairs in that costume. But either way, it just goes on so long and it's so awkward. And the stairs, the stairs are set up specifically both in the book and in the movie as being really long, wide stairs specifically to accommodate him as you figure out as you understand what's going on there as the mystery is solved, mm -hmm. but to then show him using them and unable to use them. Why, why, if you have the reveal be that it's a frog, at least have him like a hunched over man with a frog head, Yeah, you know, because then at least it wouldn't come across as so directly comical as the shuffling, hopping awkwardness comes across. There's been so many wide shots of people going up the stairs in the movie that are done really well. There's one with Kitty and Edith going up the stairs where there's like a spotlight on them and it comes across as very dreamlike and really nice. Sure. When it comes back, you just have this incredibly awkward where the whole time you're just thinking, how is that guy moving in the suit? And the answer is not well. Yeah. It's really distracting because Gerald in the explanation scene, like the psycho-esque explanation scene that they have at the end, <laughs> he talks about Sir Roger wearing like a cloak, like throwing off his cloak and swimming in the pond at the center of the maze. And 
it makes me really wish that when they had shown Sir Roger, he had been dressed. You know, he had been in a weird dragon cloak. If they had done like a little more of a, not a bullfrog look, but like a horny toad, like something like a little more weird, a little more um, jagged and strange and monstrous. I think that would work so much better. Yeah. But it, it just looks like, like a, I don't know, a, a silent movie, Alice in Wonderland frog. You know, it just looks like somebody went, I don't know, a cartoon frog, the frog prince. This is the costume we had on hand. Yeah. It really does. And it, it's that moment. Like I said, if I was introducing the movie, I don't know how I would address that. I would try to build it up, but not so much that I'm setting up unrealistic expectations. But I wouldn't want to say, hey, be careful. It's a little silly because then, then you're setting him up anyway. Yeah, I don't know. To a certain degree, it is comedic. And I think there's a degree to which it is intentionally comedic. Like, I, like I've said, the dark comedy is is so specific that it's hard to, to take as anything but dark comedy. Mm-hmm. But if that dark comedy is only coming because of special effect failure. Yeah. How could you address that to an audience without saying the end is going to make you feel weird and whatever your reaction (laughs) is, that's a fine reaction to have. Yeah. And again, like I said, the way I came to this movie was seeing a gif of black and white frogman hopping up the stairs. Like, and I was like, Oh, I kind of got to see what this is. Like, I need to know. I'm so very conflicted about it because even the book, which I think is more consistent, it has a couple more interesting details that I really like. Like the reason that Kitty is not a character in the book is that one of the rules of the castle in the book is that no women of childbearing age can be anywhere near the castle. Oh, okay. And the reason for that in the book that you discover is that the last baronet to have a wife, she was pregnant and she saw Sir Roger and the panic and the fear made her miscarry. Interesting. Okay. And that's, that is an interesting element and I appreciate that element, but this whole story is crying out for it to be more Lovecraftian. The elements of dread and the eeriness that they establish, you want it to be more scary. And at the end of the day, it just comes out as a sad misunderstanding Mm -hmm. rather than a horror story. Right. There's a degree to which I like that. It is just a man who was born basically with a deformity, Mm -hmm. just a, a more like magical realism deformity or a Lovecraftian deformity. And I like the idea that the tragedy is that he can't accept the way he looks and that he forces everybody to put up these appearances and and all of that. But it's such a a slim justification for how seriously everybody takes it, for how much Gerald is supposed to have aged. Like, a frogman is really not that scary. It, It doesn't really make sense why Aunt Edith would faint seeing it. Like, there's a degree to which after, like, If Gerald just explained to people who came to visit the castle, we have a deformed uncle who's the real baronet and I'm taking care of the place for him. You know, you don't even have to get into the fact that he's like 200 years old, but it feels like there's a cover story that they could do that Craven Castle could have that is much less than pretending the guy doesn't exist at all. Just say he has a club foot or something and, or, or is, you know, he has acromegaly or, or something like that. Yeah. And just cover up his face. Yeah. He, he could have learned sign language, right? Or learned to write. Like, how does he communicate if he's just a frog that is just a, a big frog and not a person? Yep. But they say like later in the explanation scene, Richard Carlson says like, if he'd have let his existence be known, no one would have thought of him as an evil creature. And I'm like, well then why did we do all this? Why the ruse at all? Yeah. And where did he, evil come from anyway. Nobody said anything about there being evil here. Just that. And it's, it's one thing if you have 
the townsfolk, if you have the townsfolk think that there's a monster in Craven Castle, if you have the implication be that if people knew who he was, they would try to kill him. Like if you have the idea that that Craven Castle was once rumored as a place where they worshiped the devil and and he's like mm-hmm. a demonic creature yeah. and the townsfolk would, that don't understand would burn the place to the ground and kill him if he was revealed. I would understand it, but that's not what it is. The only other townsfolk you see is the gardener who knows that there's weird stuff, but he seems unnerved, but he doesn't seem terrified. And it doesn't feel like you would have pitchforks and torches if people saw Sir Roger. It feels like Gerald could just go, hey, look, my uncle is deformed. Try not to freak out all that much. And people would just get used to it. Yeah, I agree. <sighs> it's just, it's tough because the setup is so good and so eerie and so haunting in both the book and the movie. And then it becomes kind of quaint in the sum up chapter when you have Gerald explaining to everybody what went on and, and the deal and, and that he stopped developing in the frog phase in the womb, it just takes the bite out of the story in a way that I don't like. And in a way that like Lovecraft stories don't. Yeah. And that's where it kind of gets that cozy Lovecraft. Like that's kind of how I think of it in the same way that there's some other weird fiction from around that time that kind of does that too. And those are kind of the ones that I read less of as opposed to like the Algernon Blackwood or William Hope Hodgson or H.P. Lovecraft, where they get a little more genuinely cruel with the way that their stories are told and genuinely harsh. I I think there's an honesty to that approach to cosmic horror. And I think there's a reticence to the maze where it feels like they want to use the setting and accoutrements of gothic horror or Lovecraft horror without the commitment to what that means. And, and that's kind of where I hinge on both versions of this story. It, it's complicated because I like so much of it, but that element, it creates a distance. It definitely does. You mentioned the book a few times. Does your version of the book have the illustrations? It does. So that's, that's the other thing is when I saw the movie for the first time and saw it was adapted from a book and then I was reading about the book and saw that, that uh, Salvador Dali did the illustrations for it. I've been on the lookout for a cheap enough copy of the book. It was only printed once in 1946. And finally, just before we were firm about uh, like doing this episode, I finally found a copy that was inexpensive enough that I felt justified in, in buying it. And I got to say, it is gorgeous. The, um, the copy I have too is in pretty good shape, but also the, the Dali illustrations really add so much to the story. Specifically, there's an illustration that starts the story and the same illustration flipped upside down ends the story. And they're two different pictures. The first thing that you see in the book is what appears to be a portrait of a man. And then at the end of the book, you have the portrait of the man flipped upside down. And you see that it is a frog outside of the castle looking down into the reflecting pond mournfully huh and it's the same picture flipped upside down but the second time you see it it is labeled as sir roger philip mcteam huh okay and that element alone really really elevates the way that the reveal is handled in the story because it it sells the tragedy of it so much more than the movie does where the movie sells it as dark comedy first and then tragedy as the explanation fascinating okay I really would encourage anybody who likes the movie and is a lover of old books and old cosmic horror, uh, old like weird fiction stuff. I'm very glad that I got the maze, the book version. It's fairly short. It's like a little over 120 pages, I think 110. Oh, wow. Um, 
and the illustrations, like the prose is really nice. It's really well written. And the illustrations really elevate the entire thing. And then the front cover also is designed in such a way that it looks like it has the lines of a maze on it through the way that they do the binding, which is really cool. As a fan of old books, it makes me very happy to have this book. Dali feels like the perfect person to do illustrations for the story because he gets across the nightmarish dreamlike vibe. Yeah. I guess apparently he was supposed to work on the movie version at first as well. Really? Because I think him and Menzies knew each other because Menzies did set design for Spellbound, the Hitchcock movie that Dali does the dream sequence for. Okay. But I guess Dali just wasn't available when they were filming, so he didn't end up being able to contribute. And I I think the movie would be elevated by his contribution. But it's hard to know, again, because of the pushing it into the kind of cozy Lovecraft dark comedy thing. It's hard to know how much the Dali stuff would have distracted or would have aided with the reveal of the frog. Yeah, I'm torn on it. I really am. So hard to... To me, it really is like there's a lot of monster movies from this time, uh, like Alligator People, which I can't seem to go an entire (laughs) Monster Kid Radio episode without mentioning, where I love the gothic... Actually, there's a lot of similarities between these two. The kind of gothic mystery vibe. And then the goofy monster at the end that is like, I love the way that these monsters look. I like the kind of dark comedy kitsch vibe that they have. The alligator man at the end of alligator people is very much in that same vein Mm -hmm. where it's also like an awkward costume where you just think about the guy in the costume and how he's moving the whole time (laughs) he's on screen. (laughs) But I'm so conflicted with both of them because I love the films, but I also want like, can you imagine like a Guillermo del Toro remake of the maze Oh my. and how good that would be? Oh, wow. He has the Lovecraftian horror sense. He has the like Gothic horror thing. Pan's labyrinth also has like a giant frog monster that is genuinely weird and creepy. Um, and that might just be because the main character is a little girl in the way that it still wouldn't work if it was an adult. But I think like the way that the master vampire is handled in the strain feels more like the way I would, I wish the frog was handled in this, but I think that also requires him being more openly villainous in a way that they clearly don't want Sir Roger to be. They want him to be a tragic figure, not a monstrous figure. Man, you're right because it does kind of keep it a little bit more tragic. And then hmm. it's, it's really tough. Yeah. This one is hard to kind of Monday morning quarterback, you know, did I, did I use that yeah. sports term? Right. Did I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but I assume so. I will. Vow. Um, And that's why I really wanted to talk about this with you is specifically you have to parse so much of it and try to get across like with every story. And and you know this because you're a writer as well. But with every story, there's a there's branching paths of where the story can go. And sometimes you take a path and it doesn't work as well. But sometimes you can write, you know, two versions of a story that start with the same elements that go in completely different directions. And it's hard to say that that one is better than the other or one is worse or is more true to the original story idea. But with this, there is a degree to which you wish the wrap up fit the dread and the eeriness that you feel through the setup. Now, that said, we're not saying that we disliked what we saw. No, uh, I, I, I find this film to be incredibly satisfying. I, I, I adore it. I, I think it's it's wonderful. It's one that I was so glad to see get a Blu-ray release uh, eventually. Um, Gorgeous. Is it? Yeah, I, I don't have it on blue, unfortunately. I, I wish I did. I actually thought I did, but... 
for anybody, again, who is going to be watching this for the first time, this movie is available a couple places on the internet. Yeah. But I really would advise you to get the Blu-ray. It is a beautiful print. Yeah. The the depth and texture, again, like I said, that is kind of the main appeal of the cinematography. And that stuff comes across so beautifully on the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's not one that I've got on blue. I, I wish I did, but yeah. I, I went looking through my Blu-ray collection when we started talking about doing this and was dismayed that it wasn't there. I'm like, no, I want to see the awesome transfer because I've heard great things about it. Yeah, eventually I'll try it with the 3D, but I don't I don't know that I want to. <laughs> <laughs> 3D movies for me are something where I like knowing that they were in 3D and thinking about them in 3D, but then I don't really want to to dirty the experience by actually experiencing the like weird gimmick stuff of it, you know? <laughs> you know, sometimes the 3D of that era, too, just does not hold up. I, I yeah. love Creature in 3D. I really do. And anytime I have a chance to see it in 3D, I will, you know, on the big screen. But you've got to be sitting in just the right spot in the yeah. theater to make it work for the, the original 3d effects to work. You know, if it's been redone or whatever, then you know it's fine. But the original prints of that, you've got to be sitting in just the right spot and you can't look away or whatever, or it's just going to throw off the effect. Yeah, definitely. Also, you mentioning creature actually makes me realize exactly what this movie needs. This movie needs the people who designed the creature to design the frog. <laughs> if he had a big air bladder, Oh, like doing wow. the croaking yeah. throat. Yeah. And he was handled like an old, like an old Scottish aristocrat. Like he's in the long kind of fur coat. Yes. Like the dr cloak dragging behind him. And he has the big like, Oh man. Like that would be so eerie and go with the, like Gothic horror has this thing about like the corruption of the aristocracy that I think that would really play into it. Really. It's so close to being really good. Lovecraft. Oh, man. Like, pure Lovecraft horror stuff. It just needs little touches. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would have been something. <laughs> that would have been neat. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to imagine. Because, yeah, Millicent Patrick, with what she did with the Gilman suit, that, that uh, I mean, eye, that aesthetic. Still one of the best monsters oh, ever. Hands down, no question. If not, if not yeah. the best. It is so lifelike and so believable at every point. It is a stunning piece of production, and I wish that more monsters looked the way that the creature yeah, does. agreed. Agreed. Listeners, we may have spoiled the movie, but it still offers so much more than what we just said. Highly mm -hmm. recommend it. Get it on Blu-ray. Check it out. Use the link in the show notes. I'll make sure there's one there for this. Alongside links, obviously, to the X meets Y and everything else you've got going on. Um, anything else we want to say about this movie before we wrap up? I think we've pretty thoroughly not just covered it, but like academically, again, dissected it. You just wanted an opportunity to say that again. I did. I think it's a, I think it's a good <laughs> analogy. And it's also much like the way that the frog is handled in this movie. It's, it works as a metaphor, but also it's funny. <laughs> right on. All right. We've got your story. Lone sharks coming yes. up. We've got the movie, the lunatic showing this weekend. You've got your podcast. Did we miss anything in the beginning of this that you're into? I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say I'll keep it vague. So it's fine. I'm working on a novel that is kind of a monster mash story. So yes, I've been spending all of my time on it. I'm very excited for it. I'm hoping unlike a novel that I previously completed and kind of tossed because I wasn't really happy with the end result. I'm pretty sure this one is something that once it's done, I will not just be happy with, but will be like delighted in having it as a finished work. 
and I really hope I can find a publisher for it. Uh, hopefully come back on Monster Kid Radio to uh, promote it eventually. Of course. <laughs> so in the like, yeah. you know, in a year when I get done with it, we'll see what happens. No, that'd be great. Keep us posted for sure. And best of luck with it. And best of luck with everything else, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for always supporting Monster Kid Radio and, and doing what you do. Really appreciate it. And we'll have you back on the show whether you finish your novel or not. Absolutely. Of course, there will be a link to the X Meets Y podcast in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. I'll also play a promo for his podcast here momentarily. And I'll make sure there's a link to his mummy film on YouTube. But like we said, we're going to be showing it this Saturday along with the lunatic cannot wait for that so glad that he's going to let us do that i think you're going to enjoy the lunatic i can't wait to read your story as well jonathan that sounds cool also link in the show notes amazon affiliate blah 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 y'all know how it works at this point once again i really appreciate you man let's have you back on the show again i know you and i talked a little bit about talking about a movie that we have talked about here on the show before but uh like i told you and i'll let the listeners know here too I don't think we're going to be doing flashback February again. Instead, if there's a movie that I want to revisit, we're just going to revisit it. Jonathan and I, we're going to revisit Alligator People down the line. Thanks again, man, and good luck with the writing, the movie, and everything else. If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast, X Meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode, I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as Movie X meets Movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla meets Old Yeller, and Robocop meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. that shocks you with hair-raising horror. Not one word is spoken on the screen. The strangest motion picture you have ever seen. Daughter of Horror. Blood of the ever-living, the ever-evil. Blood from the mummy's tomb. Ha <laughs> ha
from the dead, dead past come powers too terrifying, too strange to be believed. You know who I am? Yes. And you're afraid, aren't you? Who is she, wearing the mummy's face? Is she one of us, enjoying our kind of life? Or is she the ever-living, the ever-evil? <laughs> from the mummy's tomb rated PG Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, listeners, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you downloading the show, and I really, really appreciate you sharing the show with people. We're trying to drive up the numbers, get more subscriptions, get more downloads, get more likes on Facebook, followers on Twitter. We're just trying to grow the Monster Kid community, which I think is very important when it comes to anything that comes to classic film love whether it's a genre horror monster stuff or just classic film in general because really these movies they're important and i know it might sound weird to talk about how important something like the alligator people is or the maze or any of the other movies that we talk about here on the show sometimes but really these movies can be timeless if there are people still watching them. And the only way to do that is to help promote those movies through whatever channels you can. I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but if you are a classic movie lover, if you like classic monster movies or not so classic monster movies, don't hide it. Don't be ashamed of it, man. Just let the world know and drive them to places like the Classic Horrors Film Club, to this podcast, to the Classic Horror Film Board, and all the other places online where us monster kids come together and celebrate these movies. Of course, I'd love to have you celebrate them with me here on Monster Kid Radio or in the Monster Kid Movie Club, which is happening again this Saturday. For listeners who don't know anybody new to the show, anybody new to Monster Kid Radio, every Saturday on Twitch, we stream monster movies, genre films, and it's totally free. At 11 a.m. Pacific time, we start the pre-show, and that's usually a documentary or two, something kind of fun, short and sweet. And then around noon, we start the movies proper. And that runs till at least 7 p.m. Pacific time again. And like I said, it's free and there's a live chat. It's the only time that us fans of classic monster movies are going to encourage you to talk during the films. So head on over to Monster Kid movie.club and join us this Saturday. We are showing Strangler of the Swamp, which you're going to want to watch because it's going to come up again here in a few weeks on the show. We're also going to be watching two classic silent films, Nosferatu and the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And you know what? It's been a little while since we've had some Boris Karloff in the mix. So we're also going to be watching The Ghoul, which, you know, I really like. It's got some Egyptian iconography, so that makes me really happy. We're going to be watching chapters two and three of the Bela Lugosi serial, The Return of Chandu. And as you heard earlier, we're going to be showing two short movies from Jonathan Inbody, Unearthed and The Lunatic. So that's all coming up this Saturday. I hope to see you there. Again, that's monsterkidmovie.club or just look up Monster Kid Radio on Twitch. And you know, you can follow me over there too. And that's free as well. Next week here on the show, again, not quite sure what we're going to be talking about, but we will be talking about something. Because, wow, 
What does that even mean? I don't know. But there will be something coming up next week. Keep an eye on Monster Kid Radio on Facebook specifically or Twitter because I typically try to announce there what's coming up the next week with the next episode. So that's where we're going to go ahead and mention what's coming up in episode 480. Is it 89? I think it is. So yeah, Facebook, Twitter. We have Twitter over at twitter.com slash monsterkidradio. And we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Please consider liking the page and joining the group and getting involved with the conversations over there. We also have a Patreon where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help us out that way and make yourself eligible for various rewards like access to our Discord server, which I'm starting to use again, as well as some other rewards that might be coming your way as well. Again, link in the show notes to our Patreon. Trying to think of anything else coming up. Oh, yeah. You know what? Between now and next week, not only do we have the Saturday show, but we have the Tuesday stream as well. That starts at about 3.30 p.m. Pacific with a pre-show. And at 4 p.m. Pacific time, of course, we start the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, where we show two classic science fiction films and a few other fun things along the way. It's also a lot of fun. It only runs a couple of hours because there's only a few movies there. It's typically a movie, a short intermission, a short, a movie, and that's it. So low time commitment, but loads of fun. Again, there's a chat, chat it up during the films. It's a great way to meet people and just talk about some of your favorite movies. And once again, that's free. So make sure you join us on Tuesday for that and then come back here for the next episode of MKR. Of course, between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Except for the song Cthulhu Don't Surf. Cthulhu Don't Surf is copyright. Surf Aliens 20. 20, and they gave us permission to play their music here on the show, as long as I make sure you have a link to pick it up for yourself. And that's theterrorsurfs.bandcamp.com. Check out the album Terror Alien. Again, that's all one word. Or look up Surf Aliens on Facebook. That's how I communicated with them when I initially asked them about playing their music here on the show. And that's also where you can drop them a line and let them know that you picked up their music because you heard them here on the show. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Oh, my God.